This is one of my favorite resumes of all time. New York Times bestselling author of nine books, including The Tao of Bill Murray, Last Night at the Viper Room, the successful Excuse Me While I Kiss This Guy series of misheard lyric collections, <laughs> longtime contributor Rolling Stone. He's written for the New York Times, Wired, Billboard, uh, Details, and GQ. And has moonlighted as a game designer, photographer, and a demolition derby driver. I love this guy. Uh, lives in North Carolina in Charlotte. Welcome to the program, Gavin Edwards. How are you, sir? I'm very well. How about yourself, sir? I'm, I'm very good. So, uh, Mr. Rogers, he, yeah. is, he has always been an amazing man. Anybody who ever paid attention to him, uh, he's been an amazing man. Now he's gone, and he is an icon, an absolute icon, Sur- surpasses anything Sesame Street ever did. This is, this is the guy that you look at and go, that doesn't exist. Why is he suddenly so popular and everywhere? Well, I think there's uh, two reasons. One is he was the real deal. The, you know, sort of like Mr. Rogers uh, would have still done a lot of good in the world if, like, off stage he was, you know, like driving fast cars and chomping cigars. Uh, like, if that show would have still helped people. But everyone knows that, like, he was that authentic guy. Like, if he was out, uh, you know, sort of like, and he saw a kid, like, on the edge of a room where he was having lunch, uh, like, looking distressed, he would get up from his meal, he would walk over, get down on one knee, and talk to that kid and make sure that kid was okay. So like, that was what he was about. So, Gavin, at this point in our history, I don't think that guy could exist because everyone would go, I think there's something wrong with that guy. There's something wrong yeah. with him. You know, people said there's something wrong with that guy when he came out. Like, uh, there's people who said, you know, sort of like, uh, people would get cheesed off. They would take his patience with kids, not as perverse necessarily, but kind of as an insult. You know, there was this guy in a Chicago newspaper who wrote, you know, any self-respecting father just wants to punch Mr. Rogers in the nose. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like, it really, it, like, challenges people. Like, they take, you know, sort of his gentleness and his caring to be, you know, sort of like, an implicit, why aren't you doing better? Which is not what he's trying for. But, you know, if it does, in fact, challenge you to do better, to tap into your inner Mr. Rogers, then, you know, like, you're going to be better off. Uh, like, I have found, you know, just like watching the show once a day and, you know, sort of like saying to myself now and then, hey, uh, you know, sort of like, can I be a little more patient with people? Can I listen better? Can I get in touch with these very basic messages that, like, he taught me when I was a kid? that I, like, forgot about and put away, like, it improves my life. But he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't like Sesame Street. He wasn't a runaway smash, was he? Well, uh, I mean, uh, Sesame Street got even bigger, even faster. But he was, in fact, uh, you know, sort of like he took off uh, that, you know, it was a show that started off on like a, you know, sort of like a local uh, public television in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And then it went to other cities and they would uh, pretty soon they would just be getting thousands of fan letters when there was early on when they didn't uh, necessarily have enough budget to do the show. Um, uh, you know, sort of they found out that, you know, sort of like 
mothers in uh, like uh, different areas were just like going door to door raising money for the show, and they would show up in like Boston, Chicago, and Los Angeles and say, "Oh, like Mr. Rogers is making a personal appearance," and the stations would be overwhelmed because thousands and thousands of families would show up. So pretty quickly, you know, sort of even if he's not on adults' radar kids connected with them. They're like, oh, this is the guy who cares about me and is looking at me and telling me that, you know, sort of like he's happy that I'm there and I made today special. And that's just something magical. So you look at him and the way he spoke uh, was just very different. Um, And you'll hear people say, don't talk to your kids as if they're, you know, morons. Uh, now I know he was going for he was going for a younger uh, younger audience, obviously. Right. Um, but was that was that tone that he spoke to the kids about? Is that the way he always was? With that adults and natural cadence. That's the way he was with adults. And you can see if you've seen uh, the new movie with Tom Hanks, like who does in many ways a very nice job. But you can see he's fighting to slow down his natural speech patterns. It's, it's not how most people speak, but that was what he did. And he was very comfortable with silence. He would take out the radio in his car because, you know, he just wanted to be alone with his thoughts. He, uh, one of my favorite sequences on the show ever was just, he fills up a fish tank with water. It's about three minutes. Not much happens, but just like, you know, he's just hanging out with the kids and the camera and, uh, you know, sort of like, we're just going to be here and watch the fish tank fill up. He is um, uh, a obviously very mentally uh, healthy individual that likes silence. Very few people yeah. like and can handle silence. Nobody, n- nobody who is, um, you know, nobody who is who is struggling with things uh, will take the radio out of their car. Yeah, I mean, the term in your business is dead air, you know, sort of like, a, and if you think about it, you know, sort of like, that's obviously a judgment. It's not, you know, sort of quiet time or like a contemplative time, dead air. It's a, you know, it's like people say that's death when, you know, there's not something filling every second. So um, who owns the rights to Mr. Rogers? Does his family still own it? Um, it's uh, there's a nonprofit uh, foundation uh, which uh, now does the uh, show uh, uh, Daniel Tiger's name. Okay, so, so so somebody is paying somebody for all of these you know portrayals of him and and everything else. Because I'm I'm wondering it's it's just it's almost so far out of the blue, and maybe that's why it's so successful because he's the anti today. Or was it kind of or was it kind of like, you know, it's a wonderful life. Oh, there's no copyright on this. We just play this all the time. People are really, really responding to this. And you can see just in the last couple of years. And I think, you know, like whoever you are or like, uh, you know, like uh, however you feel about like sort of politics in the world, you can see things are getting louder and they're getting like nastier and cruder. And you like look at reality television, you look at how people interact with each other. And it just feels like in our lifetimes, you know, like the dial keeps going up and there's just more hostility in the air than there used to be. And so I think people just like crave Mr. Rogers. It's like a glass of cold water uh, that, 
you know, you say, oh, it doesn't have to be like this all the time. I can actually, you know, even if I don't control the mass culture, I can control what's going on, like, in my family and in my neighborhood and how I react to people. And that's, I think, why there's so much interest in him and, like, uh, renewed love for him in the last couple of years. So he's a, um, he's a pendulum swing that we hope will catch on uh, bigger than just going to see him at the movies or reading about him in your book. He's a pendulum swing yeah. that we're we hopefully will go. <laughs> you know, no, and and sometimes pendulums swing uh, not just because of like one big apocalypse event, but because lots of people decide to push just a little in the same direction. You know, sort of if uh, more people just like take a moment to, to you know sort of like be kind uh, to you know sort of like slow down and like listen to their kid and stuff. Like we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go. Right. Then you know, like. That's to the good. Do you think that show could exist today? It barely was able to exist then. Like, it was this weird, fluky thing that, you know, sort of, like, got into uh, public television, uh, you know, sort of at just the right time when they had, you know, sort of, like, hours that needed to be filled. And he had these gifts of, you know, sort of, like, he would have been a puppeteer. And he, uh, you know, like, he wrote the music himself. And he knew all these things. He knew how to do a show. Uh, But, uh, you know, and just... Uh, because, like, well, there's nothing else. It's that or dead air. Um, So I don't think you could ever get that show on the air right now, but I do think that somebody like him could come on, and he was such a natural communicator. He would find a medium, and he would still find a way to connect with people. Uh, Any explanation on the name Mr. McFeely? Ah, um, so... That is actually, uh, you know, sometimes people raise their eyebrow and is like, is that a double entendre thing? Well, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's a kid's show. The guy is really soft-spoken and the mailman who comes in and talks to the kids from time to time is Mr. McFeely. It's one of those things like when you look at Michael Jackson and you're like, keep it in the closet. Maybe we should have thought about that. (laughs) He was telling us something. So (laughs) McFeely was uh, Fred Rogers' middle name, Uh, but more importantly, it was uh, the name of his grandfather. Um, uh, grandfather mm. McFeely, who, uh, you know, sort of one of the reasons like uh, Fred had such a connection with kids and, uh, was that he had a kind of an unhappy childhood. He grew up in privilege, but he was chubby. He was asthmatic. He was awkward. You know, he was sort of just kind of like shy and in many ways unhappy. But somebody who just really showed him like love a lot of the time was his grandfather, who mm-hmm. like would encourage him, you know, like, hey, you want to go have an adventure? Go like climb these stone walls on the farm. Go do that. It's going to be okay if you rip your pants. And he was the person who told him, you know, sort of, you made today special just by being here. Uh, and that was something that meant so much to Fred when he was a kid and something that he was able to pass on to kids. So, uh, so when he needed to name and uh, like it was a tribute to his grandfather. So what's his family like? His, did he have children? What are they like today? Um, so uh, he uh, married his college sweetheart, um, uh, Joanne Rogers, a mm-hmm. concert pianist, mm-hmm. um, uh, who, you know, sort of like a... Uh, they apparently had uh, great good times together. Um, uh, she is 
uh, you know, sort of like a good human being, but less patient than uh, Fred Rogers, because who is as patient as Fred Rogers? Yeah, 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 nobody. So she'll talk about like, oh, you know, sort of like, uh, I was out at, uh, you know, like getting the car fixed, and the guy was just like no good at all. I don't even think he knew what he was doing. And he would say, well, maybe he was having a bad day. And right. like, I don't care about his bad day. What about <laughs> me? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and they had uh, two boys uh, who, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, are basically private people. They're uh, not particularly in the public eye, but they do an interview now and then in tribute to their dad. And uh, decent people. I mean, I mean, it seemed to that, work. That, that, was he there yeah, for them? Yeah, I mean, he was. Uh, what people say is that he was like a very loving, attentive father, um, and you know, sort of like in some ways, even training to be a father all his life. Um, he was not very good at disciplining them. Uh, they, you know, sort of like you know, was very good at communicating, yeah. and but you know, like found it hard to be the authoritarian, and that turned out to be uh, you know, mom's job in that household. <laughs> Gavin, thank you so much. Great talking to you. You can follow uh, Gavin. I enjoyed it. Uh, me too. Mr. Gavin uh, Edwards is where you can follow him. The name of the book is Kindness and Wonder, Mr. Rogers. Uh, it is uh, well worth your time to read. And I have not seen the movie. I saw the documentary. I think I saw half of the documentary. Uh, and I haven't seen the movie yet, but I want to. Uh, and he is somebody that we should all be looking toward right now. Because if we could just listen to each other, be a little kinder, uh, maybe the world would be full of a little bit more wonder that we would notice. Thank you so much, Gavin. Appreciate it. Thank you, Glenn. I really appreciate it. You bet. Holy cow, we have had a jam-packed show today. Uh, we have we just finished with one Gavin uh, Edwards. Now we're going to Cam Edwards in just a few minutes. He's going to be telling us about what's going on in Virginia, and it is remarkable. And what's even more remarkable to me is this is something I have never even seen, even during the Tea Party. This is bigger than the Tea Party movement, what's happening in, in Virginia, the sanctuary cities. The people are turning out in droves uh, to stand up for the Second Amendment, and you know, obvious reasons. The media is not really covering it. We also had Daniel Hannon on earlier today. You have, if you missed a minute of the show today, you've missed a lot. Uh, make sure you listen to our podcast. It's available uh, anywhere uh, you get your podcast. Um, also, tomorrow's podcast is an interview with Dave Rubin, is it not? I think, I, I think, I think it, it is, is yeah. yeah. Uh, so don't miss it, podcast. Uh, Daniel Hannon was on today. We talked a little bit about Brexit and what happened in in uh, in England with the uh, vote against uh, Labour, and it was a bludgeoning for the Labour Party. And a lot of people here in in the on the left were looking at England and saying, "Ah, this is really going to be what it's going to be like for us in America." And if Donald Trump plays his cards right, I think that's exactly what's going to happen here in America. Have you been following this sort of back and forth between the Senate and the president where they're talking about how this investigation is going to go forward? And what Mitch McConnell seems to be saying is basically they're letting the president, you know, take the lead here. What do you, what do you want to do? They should. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little weird. I mean, supposedly this is a vote on whether he's going to be, impeached or not so normally you wouldn't well he's necessarily... going to be impeached i mean they just voted for the articles I mean, of rem- removed yes they did the, it's out, out of committee, of, out of committee. Yep. and so now it's got to go to the floor and next week they Sorry. will vote for uh, impeachment so he will be impeached the yeah. trial means will he be convicted and removed from office so mcconnell's basically saying you know 
I, he's trying to, I would say, lose the uh, argument against the Senate that you might make, for example, mm-hmm. if they come out and just get this over with quickly and don't go into all this depth. He's trying to say, look, we're following the president's lead. If he wants to do this, fine. If he doesn't, fine. Uh, if he wants to call witnesses, fine. If he doesn't, fine. That's the argument from the Senate. And so the left wait, wait, is wait, saying, wait a minute, you can't let the guy who's in, on nope. trial design the trial. You can't. So, so what you're telling me is the Republicans are shirking their responsibility constitutionally in the Senate. They are mealy-mouthed. They are spineless individuals who will just go along. That does seem to be the case. However, <laughs> I, I agree with that. I'm I mean, shocked. I am should, shocked. At the very least, they shouldn't be publicly saying right. that. I mean, I, I don't think it's a good idea to let the president no, I think design it's... the process. They should do what they think is right. That's right. And I, you know, but I think what they're trying to say is basically win over Trump supporters so they don't get blamed if Trump decides, well, I want to get this over with right now. He's trying to, he's trying to diffuse the argument. To Trump supporters who are saying, wait, I want a big trial. Right. I want this investigated. And the president might might say and decide, I don't want to go through all this. Let's get it over with and get on with the election. So what you're saying is the Republicans are only playing politics, not actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but like, they're, they're, I mean, if, I know, if it's I know, the president's know. decision, well, know. you know, what do people say? I, I know. I know that the Republicans should grow a spine and do the right thing. That's what I said two weeks ago, and I'll continue to say. Back in just a second. Just trying to frustrate you, Stu. Thank you. And it worked. Welcome to the program, uh, Mr. Cam Edwards, who's part of the uh, podcast, the Blaze Podcast uh, Network. We're glad you're here. Uh, Cam uh, has been a First Amendment um, uh, rights guy for ever since I can remember. Um, and uh, has his podcast about it, and I really want to talk to him, uh, Second Amendment, uh, and I, I really want to talk to him about what's happening in Virginia and this this movement in Virginia that is really getting very little attention in the mainstream, and that is the Sanctuary Cities movement. Cam, the way I view this, now I don't, I haven't been there, so I haven't seen it. I don't know if you have, but I think this is more powerful uh, than the Tea Party turnouts that were happening even at its zenith. You know, Glenn, I think that you're right, and thanks so much for having me on the program. And we now have 91 localities in Virginia, most of which are counties, that have adopted these Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions. And I have been to about eight of these county board of supervisors meetings where the resolutions have been discussed, and I've never seen anything like this. I mean, you have thousands of Virginians who are showing up with their neighbors, with their friends, with their family, uh, to urge these supervisors to, to pass a, a measure that says we don't plan on spending any county funds enforcing unconstitutional gun control laws. Uh, and, and you say, you know, this has uh, got more energy than the Tea Party movement. I, I think it has at least as much energy, and this is so hyper-local. Uh, this is, you know, not a top-down movement that it really is incredible to see. So what is the state of Virginia doing what are the democrats doing first of all is this a right versus left issue or is this bipartisan these turnouts you know i think it is largely a right versus left but i do know that there are democrats who are showing up and democrats who are voting in support of these resolutions particularly in rural virginia um I, you know i think it's a pro-gun anti-gun split honestly and the democrats in the state 
quite frankly, they're flipping out. They don't know what to do. Uh, Congressman Donald McEachin, who represents Virginia's 4th Congressional District, talked about how Governor Northam should send out the National Guard uh, to enforce these new gun control laws in, in counties that uh, they refuse to uh, you know, enforce gun bans or magazine bans. Uh, Governor Northam has promised that there will be some sort of unspecified consequences uh, for counties that do not capitulate. But so far... Uh, you know, that doesn't seem to be having any effect on the movement whatsoever. So what do you suppose the people of Virginia will do if they send out the National Guard to enforce something that is, I mean, it it kills me. You know, sanctuary cities are known uh, as cities that are breaking the law and saying Mm -hmm. and defying the law. This, This one is saying, no, no, no. It's a Bill of Rights issue, and we're standing by the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and not letting you in. What, what, do, the, what do the Democrats think would happen uh, if, they, if they enforce it with, with, with uh, some sort of National Guard? I, I, I guess they assumed that folks would comply. Uh, but I just don't see that happening. There are so many county sheriffs. We're now seeing Commonwealth attorneys, which are local prosecutors in Virginia, uh, that are also saying, you know what, we're not going to go out and we're not going to arrest anybody uh, for, you know, having a 20 round magazine or, or we're not going to go out and seize anybody's guns. And, and ultimately, I think that's what this comes down to. The, the governor and these anti-gun lawmakers can put these laws on the books, but they've taught us, Glenn, how to resist over the last few years mm-hmm. and we're taking pages from their playbook we're doing exactly what they've done you know even in the state of virginia there was a commonwealth attorney earlier this year in portsmouth virginia who announced that she would be dismissing every misdemeanor marijuana case that was brought to her office right and governor northam didn't complain he didn't uh, threaten her with sanctions or said that there would be consequences for her ignoring state law um so why would it be any different if we're talking about uh, you know, not enforcing, if, quite frankly, a lot of these laws are unenforceable anyway, but not enforcing universal background checks or not enforcing a, a magazine ban. Uh, I just don't see the difference there. And I think the Democrats have, have kind of painted themselves into a corner. Look, everybody says that, you know, uh, we have to have universal background checks. I don't understand this. It's the most popular thing you can say as a Democrat. Uh, it's popular with the Republicans, the independents and Democrats. Can we have those, don't we? We have those. We've got background checks on every retail sale of a firearm. And what they want to do is they want to expand that to, to private transfers, even between family and friends. So even though you know, I think you and I uh, met for the first time back in 2003, um, it would be illegal for me to even loan you a firearm if you came to visit me uh, in Virginia. It's, it's absolutely absurd. And, you know, Glenn, as far as the practical effects go, it sounds good on paper. It polls really well. But if you look at states where these laws have been put on the books, Colorado, for example, passed their universal background check law in 2013. Violent crime is up more than 25 percent in the state of Colorado since that background check law was put on the books. So if this is about public safety, it doesn't work. If it's about targeting legal gun owners, and I think that's what it's really about, uh, then that's enough for these gun control advocates to push it. So if the the governor decides to call out the National Guard, um, which I – do you think that's realistic, that, that that's even a realistic – I don't. Okay. I, I, I don't. I would be shocked. Um, I, I think it's much more likely that the government were, that the governor would try to use the Virginia State Police, uh, that the attorney general would maybe use his office to come in and prosecute 
uh, in counties and take cases, uh, you know, that the uh, Commonwealth's attorney or not. But I, I, I would be shocked and, and um, really, really uh, bitterly disappointed if the governor actually tried to do something like send out the National Guard. And I think that would fail, by the way. I think that, you know, again, the National Guard is made up in Virginia of Virginians. Yeah. And I don't think those members of the National Guard are any more enthusiastic about enforcing these gun control laws than the county sheriffs and a lot of local cops. That yeah, I've it's, I mean, this is something that people have talked about for a long time. You know, if the army was ever turned against the American people, would they shoot? This is even this is even harder to believe, because, as you said, those are Virginians and they would be enforcing a law on virginians and most of those people are probably second amendment right people yeah. uh and i just i mean it, that's a big test uh to to lose especially it, it, it is but again i like i said i think they've painted themselves into a corner here i mean even if you get into prosecuting uh, individuals for you know violating these new gun laws that they want to put on the books I, you know, there were, I think it was Rockingham County, there were about 3,000 people who crammed into a high school gymnasium and about another 3,000 who couldn't fit uh, who were outside the other night. I, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, you know, are any of those people, if they serve in a jury pool, are they going to convict their neighbor? Are they going to convict the person who owns the hardware store that they visit on a weekly basis? I, I don't think that they will. And so whether it's through you know, a, a jury nullification, whether it's through the Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions, whether it's through the discretion that uh, law enforcement already has, I, I just don't see a way for these gun control laws to be fully enforced across the state of Virginia. I think they're going to be enforced in deep blue areas. I think we're going to see exactly what we've seen in places like New York State, for example, after they passed the SAFE Act. The majority of prosecutions under that gun control package take place in two boroughs of New York City, the Bronx and Brooklyn. And the vast majority of people who are prosecuted are young black men with no violent criminal history who are sent to prison for three and a half years for simply possessing a firearm without a license. And, and I think it's going to be young minority men in, in low-income neighborhoods who are primarily going to be impacted by these gun control laws in Virginia. Uh, and I don't know that that's the legacy that, uh, you know, Governor Blackface Northam really wants to leave. <laughs> uh, Cam, have you heard the uh, case in Illinois of the woman who is trying to uh, defend herself? She was in her car. She had a gun. She has license to have a gun, not license to carry, but she had it in her glove box. Her husband, her ex comes, is uh, threatening her life, trying to get into the car, trying to hurt her. She takes her gun out. She shoots. He gets, uh, what was it, a $10,000 bail? She has a $75,000 bail. Where is the common sense here? There, there is none, unfortunately. Um, and, yeah, I, I'm very familiar with this story. Uh, I've actually learned a couple of additional uh, pieces of information, including the fact that this guy apparently has been convicted of battering this woman in the past on a couple of occasions. Um, I did learn that the woman uh, was able to bond out. Uh, thankfully, so she's she's back Good. out. But again, it's absolutely egregious that the the state of Illinois and the state's attorney in Illinois would look at this case and decide that that this woman who acted in self-defense and police say she acted in self-defense, that this woman should face a higher bond than the guy who beat her in her car. Um, it's uh, uh, the holiday. And um, I just want you to know we're praying for for you and Miss E. How is she doing? 
she's doing she's doing okay. She's enjoying the holidays right now. She's actually not on uh, uh, any form of treatment at the moment. She was in a clinical trial for her non-small cell lung cancer, but she had some side effects, so she had to get off of it. So uh, her oncologist said, you know, look, let's let's take a couple months. Let's see if any clinical trials open up. Uh, and she's got an appointment next week, and hopefully, hopefully she'll be back getting some treatment soon. But uh, but her spirits are good. Uh, she's in the Christmas spirit. She's busy uh, uh, knitting and crocheting uh, little corny goat critters that she's putting mm-hmm. up for sale in her Etsy shop. And, uh, and and we're just trying to enjoy the holidays. You know, How, we're trying to make every day count. How are you holding up? For the most part, I'm good. I appreciate you asking. Um, you know, it's my job to be her rock. So. Uh, I let her, you know, put all of that on me, and then uh, occasionally I'll, uh, you know, wander outside. Thankfully, we live on 40 acres, and my neighbors can't hear when I yell and scream at the moon or the sun or the, or the clouds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I get it out of my system, and I go back, and I, I, uh, I do what I can to, again, make sure that, that, that her every day is as good as it can be. Cam, you're a good man. Say hi to Missy e for us, and, uh, and blessings this holiday season. Thank you so much. Thank you, Glenn. You Talk bet. to you soon. Cam Edwards, uh, BearingArms.com. He is also 40 Acres and a Fool, uh, which is a uh, podcast on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Mr. Uh, Stu Begier is uh, has joined us. Mr. Begier. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, Glenn. Mr. Dr. Colonel uh, Master... Well, say uh, it right. If you're going to say it, say it right, man. I only ask for a modicum of respect. You've worked hard for these titles. I have. Dr. Colonel... No. What's first? Reverend... Reverend Reverend Colonel Doctor. No. Reverend Dr. Colonel. Reverend Dr. Colonel Beck. Beck. How dare you? (laughs) I am a reverend of the Church of Universal Life, Modesto, California. Mm -hmm. I am... A doctor of humanities, Liberty University, mm-hmm. and I am a Kentucky colonel, no. like Colonel Sanders. A real—that's a real thing, Kentucky uh, colonel. And is that just from because your appearance, you look like? No, colonel Sanders, you don't or? have to look like Colonel Sanders to get it. You have to be given that by the governor of the great state of Texas uh, of uh, Kentucky? Kentucky, and uh, uh, that happened. Years ago, in the 80s, I was made a Kentucky colonel. Really, were you? Yes, I was. Did so. you look like Colonel Sanders then? No, I then? didn't, and you can shut up now. But, again, you can say it politely to me. Reverend Doctor. Dr. Colonel Sanders Beck. <sighs> okay, uh, let's just play a little bit from uh, from Cuomo getting slapped down uh, by the aform- a former attorney general uh, ab- about the coverage of cnn but first i want to remind you what comey had said just a couple of days ago last saturday about the fisa process listen i have total confidence that the fisa process was followed and that the entire case was handled in a thoughtful responsible way by doj and the fbi Uh i think the notion that fisa was abused here is nonsense it's nonsense well, that's not what the inspector general found and found. He found that it was incredibly uh, flawed and disturbing to all Americans is what uh, he felt everyone should uh, should view this as. Here is a former AG for the Bush administration on CNN's prime time with Cuomo. Listen to this. In terms of logic of thought and argument, why this insistence on denying what was pretty well established through the testimony by respectable people uh, about what happened here? 
and why it happened. Why isn't the stronger argument for Republicans? Look, what he did was not textbook. Uh, maybe that's because he's not a politician. It was even wrong in some ways. But they got the aid. He never got any dirt on the Bidens. The election is safe. How can this be worthy of impeachment or removal from office? Why deny everything? That is well, there's a lot more going on than just denying everything, number one. They're making the points that you made. Number two, mm -hmm. there is still, I think, some legitimate question about whether uh, what was happening at Burisma, which was a crooked operation, uh, as a great deal of the Ukraine is, uh, didn't warrant some taking a look. Except uh, to keep it away from the absurd, the country's watching this right now. It's about what is the standard of behavior? You have the Republicans pointing the finger at the left and saying, you guys are just purely political. You hate the president. That's gratuitous because the person who uses hate and animus is our president. Oh um, but they haven't made any good faith effort to do any oversight as the constitutional demands as a duty they took an oath to uphold. They've just been his defense counsel. Bravo for him, but bad for the process. Why not at least own what's obvious? What is the proper standard? This is this is a this is an impeachment proceeding. Yes. You don't remove somebody from office for not meeting the proper standard, for not displaying those qualities of mind, character and temperament that are appropriate to a president. I I, I mean, I don't Cuomo is so they see the world through a funhouse mirror. They're not reflecting reality at all. We are saying those things. You're listening to Glenn Beck.